So you are very welcome back to the Jack McDonald show. Now, the person on the line is perhaps one of the most fascinating people you could talk to in this country, because not only are they living life on the edge, they're doing it legally. They are reporting on people like the Kinnahans, the Hutches, and many other of the criminal elements, and they are still alive to tell this tale. Nicola Talent, thanks so much for doing this. No problem, Jack. Doesn't feel like I'm living too much on the edge <laughs> these days. But anyway, how did you get started as a crime journalist? Because it doesn't seem like something that most people would get into. Well, just depends, I suppose. You know, it's 20 odd years ago since I started working as a journalist. And back then you worked purely for a newspaper. There was no websites mm. and, you know, it was just pure writing. So you got sent on whatever the story of the day was, be it mm. political or, um, you know, a crime story. And for me, there was, uh, it was around the time that the John Gilligan gang were being brought home from the UK to face charges in relation to her murder. And that was a big, big story of the day. It was probably the biggest story there was. So uh, I got sent to the Special Criminal Court over a number of months while those trials were happening. Um, to report on them and I think that's really how I got started with it mm. I found it interesting and you get a little bit of experience when you cover the courts and uh, mm. a journalist yeah. with experience is a bit like hen's teeth mm. uh, you'll find if you if you get a little bit of experience it'll bring you a long way mm. Mm. and well you talked about John Gilligan there and the Veronica Guerin situation Veronica Guerin if you can give us some background she was a journalist who sadly had her life taken Yes, she was. Now, I was working at the time she was murdered. I was working in a local newspaper mm. um, and I was maybe doing a couple of shifts on some of the, the national papers. I used to cover some of the, the district courts and that kind of thing. But she was murdered in June of 1996 and she was working as a, as a journalist for the Sunday Independent and she was covering organised crime and John Gilligan's gang were one of those that she'd focused on. He uh, was a cannabis dealer mainly who had got very rich very quickly mm. he had been released from prison in 94 and within two years had built up a 20 million euro business mm. and this was prior to the existence of the criminal assets bureau at a time when criminals in ireland were spending their money when they made it mm. so gilligan had bought a very uh, fancy equestrian center or rather plot of land in 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 um, kildare and he had built a big, huge equestrian centre, the top equestrian centre in the country on the land. And he was basically living like Lord of the Manor. She was investigating him, had gone down and asked a few questions, had previously been beaten up by him and was pressing charges against him. Mm. So basically he was facing the courts himself and possible jail term. And he wanted to do anything possible to save his whatever reputation he felt he had, but also his business. Now, he ended up, he actually wasn't convicted of Veronica Guerin's murder. He was convicted on a drug charge, but it was his gang that have been largely recognised as having carried out the murder. Mm. She was um, she was killed on the Nace Road in, in, in her car on her way back from, she was down in court herself on a speed, for a speeding fine. Mm. So, uh, very unfortunate. I mean, a huge, there was just a wave of shock and horror I think it was the first time the threat of organised crime to the state was recognised mm. while, you know, every victim of crime, every victim of gun crime is important. 
um, a journalist is seen as one of the pillars, media is seen as one of the pillars of the state mm. and an attack like that is is something that maybe we don't see so much in, in civilised societies mm. um, and, and it was so unacceptable. There was a huge backlash against Gilligan and others. Mm. Am I naive to think that Christy Kinahan and, and, and Hutches and some of these other more notable figures would be too smart to do that, that perhaps John Gilligan was a bit of a thug? Um, I wouldn't think any of them are too smart or too not to do it. I think a lot of them saw what happened to Gilligan and his gang after it. They saw the relentless pursuit of them that took the the guards across the world to, to track him down, to bring him back. He got such a lengthy sentence. The Criminal Assets Bureau was established, which ever since has gone after the, the wealth of these criminals. And there was a massive political backlash to it. And uh, some of them, yes, definitely wouldn't like to find themselves in the mm. eye of such a storm. Um, others can be a m- bit more volatile. You usually find that criminals like Christy Kinahan Sr. and Jerry Hutch, who've been in the business for decades, um, they are usually people who, believe it or not, when you say that about Hutch now, but who 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 like to go about their business quietly. Mm. They don't really like to bring uh, a lot of attention on themselves because they're clever enough to know that if they start killing people, then they're going to become the subject of um, investigations themselves. Mm. So when you started uh, in, on a bigger scale reporting on crime, what was the criminal landscape like? And, you know, especially compared to now? Well, it was... Um, Look, it's always been somewhat similar in that there's always been gangs in it and vying for control of it. Um, there certainly weren't as many gangs. We could probably count 10 to 20 significant players in the the business at the time. And I probably would have, when I started writing about it, known who each one of them were. Mm. Whereas now, um, sometimes even people are, you know, can be murdered and I still have to, haven't heard of them even because they haven't been long enough in the business to have come on the radar mm. um, of journalists, you know. Mm. And there's just a lot more drugs about. Mm. They're pushing it further and further into the country and um, as a result, there's more people involved mm. in the business. Mm. Am I right to say that it has become a lot more dangerous in the last 20 years and a, lot, a bit, little bit more ruthless? Most definitely, I would think that uh, it's become more dangerous because there's much easier access to firearms. Um, I think a lot of the gangs and the turfs, which would be, you know, drug turf, is populated by very young guys who they tend to be guys, by the way, uh, who tend to live for the day. Mm. They don't have any long term goals other than sometimes even to just survive. Mm. Um, their first weapon of war is a gun. They no longer sit down and discuss. Uh, there was a time when I would have started out that there were sort of elders, godfathers, fixers who would have been people that if there was a row within the criminal fraternity, they would have gone to the fixer and a deal would have been hammered out. Somebody always ended up paying somebody else money. There were certain uh, rules that were in place even within that world. They always used to say that you never brought uh, trouble to another man's front door. 
So in other words, you never went to their home or into their families to mm. try and solve a problem. You would only take the trouble to them. I mean, that is well and truly, mm. you know, those those rules are, are, are just historic now, as you can see from that Hutch criminal Kinahan feud where, you know, mm. members, anybody, mem- members of the Hutch family or associates of were targets. Mm. Mm. In terms of yourself and being a crime journalist, has there been, I, I think on Tommy Tiernan, you did say that uh, perhaps you've had threats and Garda notices. What's that been like? No, that's usually, look, I mean, all crime journalists, and I would put us in the same category as maybe guards, as lawyers working in the criminal courts, sometimes even hospital staff, will get threatened by people. They're people of kind of lower morals, and sometimes the people I'd be writing about, that is their first port of call, even in a, in a you know, if they're, if they're annoyed or irritated mm. by something. So you just have to expect that. Mm. And I mean, most of it passes, passes, you know, without any incident. Um, sometimes things are taken a little bit more seriously. But, you know, prison officers, too, there's an awful lot of occupations that, you know, uh, come into contact with with criminals, social workers even can be, you know, dealing within family units that are linked to organised crime. And you will sometimes get threats, but by and large, things are OK. And I think it's it's accepted that, um, you know, while crime journalists might be a bit irritating, mm. uh, they're just there and that's it, mm. part of society. Mm. On the other hand, I think it would be fair to say that some of them seem to relish some of the spotlight and even the nicknames Dapper Don and the likes. Has there been any of them that have uh, talked to you about liking some of the reporting you've done? Oh, there's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. Sometimes, um, so I work for the Sunday World, which is, you know, the home of crime writing, really. Mm. And where some of those nicknames evolved over the years and mainly those nicknames they actually give to one another. They're nicknames they have before we start writing about them. Some of them have been uh, given to them by the media and largely because of legal issues, mm. which means we can't name them. Either they're before the courts facing trial, which means we can't name um, an individual and or else they haven't got convictions relating mm. to what we're saying they're involved in. Mm. So they might not, for example, have a drug trafficking conviction and we're saying they're drug dealers. Then we have to we're in a legal position where we have to just use a, a nickname for them. But there's no doubt some of them enjoy it and some mm. of them relish <laughs> going into the pages mm. of the Sunday World newspaper. Uh, some of them don't. Um, I've plenty of contacts from the criminal underworld who can find some of it amusing, mm. um, you know, but by and large, it's not it's it's not um, something to be laughed at. It is very serious stuff. And um, the business of of drug dealing and organized crime is just getting more and more concerning all the time. Mm. We saw recently Europol are talking about a tsunami of cocaine coming at Europe and they don't seem to have the resources in law enforcement to deal with it, mm. um, which is how serious it, it has got. You may have noticed today um, there's big breaking news. The FBI have infiltrated or actually set up an encrypted phone network. They did this over the last few years 
uh, as a secret operation, obviously. Mm. An encrypted phone network are the ones that the uh, criminals use to communicate with one another. Mm. And they're supposed to be bulletproof, that nobody can listen in, can hack them. Um, but they have been hacked a few times. There's been a few of these high-profile hacks of these networks that they've been using. Mm. And each time one of them collapses, they move to another one. But this time, after the collapse of the last one, over the last six months, they've moved to a one called Anom, which they discovered today was actually being run by the FBI. <laughs> so the, uh, the Americans, the Canadians, the Australians, New Zealand police authorities and a couple of the European countries moved in on, on um, some of their suspects mm. over the last couple of days. Um, and they all speak about, I was just attended the Europol press conference this morning. Um, some of the top brass of Europe's police forces were talking about what's happened. And they all talk about crime is now a global issue. Mm. The only way the police forces can fight it is through cooperation sharing their intelligence, working together. Mm. They're all singing off the same hymn sheet with it. It's no longer something that we can just, as for example here, our Garda Síochána can fight on their own. Mm. We need to all be working, all the countries and territories need to be working together. So it's a huge threat. Mm. I wonder uh, if we perhaps bring it more towards the Kinahans because they are one of the most powerful cartels or, or at least were one of the most powerful cartels as we understand in the world. What was the, what was it like yourself and just in terms of Christy Kinahan's rise? How do those link up? Of course, he came from actually a modest background. He didn't really come from the streets. Well, he, he came from a very middle class background, which is really unusual in that world. And he was given an education. His both parents worked and they had a very, um, they, they lived at a very good address in Dublin, but he chose to go into that world. He started off in fraud. He was somebody, because of his middle class accent and manners, he was useful to um, a lot of the inner city criminals who were at the time robbing whatever they could mm. um it's before really the drug scourge came in they were tending to you know they could have robbed a load of mattresses mm. and they'd need to sell them on so christy kinahan was a great man to bring in to do the business dealings he put a suit on and he could go and and get rid of their stock mm. their product uh, and he was a good fraudster he was good at um impersonating people mm. and you know he was forging checks and this kind of thing. But at the time in Dublin, there was a drug dealer, the first really of the, the, the drug millionaires called Larry Dunn. He was dealing heroin in Dublin and he was, he began to use his own product actually and store it um, in a place where it was obvious that he was hands on with it still. Mm. So he was actually arrested, brought before the courts and he was jailed for a big lengthy sentence, mm. leaving a gap in the market. So there weren't that many heroin dealers at the time that somebody would just pick up his business. Mm. There was a gap, a vacuum. And it was Christy Kinahan who recognised it, Kinahan Sr., and he tried to move in on it. And he himself was caught um, with a load of heroin in the in the late 1980s mm. and he got his first major jail term at mm. that point am i right that but, the person he suspected uh, that grassed him out ended up dead about 20 years later 
That was on a, a check forgery issue, but yes, okay. he certainly always had a long memory for mm. anybody he suspected had done him wrong. I think what happened was Kinahan was he'd a head for business. He probably would have been um, a business person that mm. we'd have been talking about that had been recognised. Um, but he brought that head for business, that intelligence into the drugs world. When he was jailed and he went to Port Leash prison, he met up with like-minded individuals and jail became nearly his finishing school. Mm. He made his connections. He he particularly got on with a criminal called John Cunningham, mm. who had been uh, in jail for, for kidnapping Jennifer Guinness, the um, wife of... Uh, the Guinness and Mahan banker and uh, she had been held against her will and kidnapped and uh, they'd look for a ransom but himself and his brother had been caught and Cunningham and Kinahan shared a landing and they shared a dream which was to become the first major Irish wholesalers of drugs mm. they wanted to move up the ladder quickly out of the country and become the suppliers for everybody else Mm. Um, and between them, they managed to do that very successfully. Mm. Mm. And then, of course, they went to Belgium, later Spain, and now Dubai. I wonder, do we have any idea as to Christy Kinnan's uh, lifestyle in Dubai? I believe he's retired. Well, so we're told, but I mean, only having made and invested hundreds of millions of drug money into legitimate businesses. So he's mm. still seen as a businessman. Um, he has retired. I know that he stays in Dubai. His favourite haunt is the Grosvenor Hotel. He has been spotted there. He travels around a bit. He's not as stuck as his son, Daniel Kinahan, who hasn't entered Europe since 1996. Sorry, no, sorry. what am I talking about? I've lost... <laughs> about 30 years of my life there um 2016 even um but uh he does move about and he still you know mm. meets business business clients he he ultimately wanted to do that to transition from common drug dealer to legitimate businessman and i think he actually made it very few of them do make it up that ladder and when they do that it's very difficult to ever bring them you know to to to, to mm. heal Mm. because there's a lot to untangle. Mm. Um, I mean, there's another Irish criminal called George the Penguin Mitchell, who I tracked down to Germany some years ago, and he would be probably at an equal level as Christy Kinahan Sr. would have left Ireland and established himself as a wholesaler in around the same time. Now, he came to the attention of German police in recent years who wiretapped him. Mm. And I happened to get the files that they kept on him. And they were really very interesting because they showed the diversity of the investments he had made. And he was trying to eventually become legitimate, mm. to invest in as much legitimate business so as he could bequeath his fortune, his multimillionaire's fortune to his own children and descendants mm. and uh, that's the biggest problem they have at that stage and, and at their age that they need to have they need to work out how <laughs> they can pass this money down mm. and you know that it won't get lost in the ether mm. um but mitchell like was involved in businesses in china 
across America, into Canada, all over Europe, into Asia. He had investments in, you know, uh, precious metals, mm. in green industry. He was investing in, in healthcare products, you name it. Mm. And he had shares or investments in it. Mm. Very, very diverse. What would his, uh, the penguin, what, what would his, uh, was it cocaine? Was it heroin? Was it all of them? Yeah, largely heroin, but uh, but pretty much all of them. I mean, they don't really uh, snub any mm. drug that will make them money, to mm. be honest with you. Um, they sometimes will specialise in a particular area only because of their contacts. And um, they all start out wanting to just deal cannabis because that's the one that everybody thinks is kind of okay. Mm. Um, and I do think probably in certainly my lifetime that will be legalized, but uh, it's not a class A drug, obviously. Mm. But they want to just deal cannabis because they feel okay about that. Um, they feel they're not damaging communities mm. and they're not mm. um, being too greedy. Mm. They feel that it's it's a naturally grown substance and they feel kind of good about themselves for doing that. But very quickly, you'll find most dealers who, who do start wholesaling cannabis then make connections into Afghanistan for heroin, mm. you know, into Colombian gangs and, and Central and South American gangs for cocaine. And they start just becoming really greedy the mm. more money they make. Mm. Now, let's turn a little attention towards Daniel Kinahan. Of course, uh, you yourself were almost, uh, you were at least towards the front of the papers when uh, he decided towards the start of this year that he was going to take a more active role in boxing. And I believe uh, actually it was more towards last year, but he was going to take a more out there uh, role in boxing with the uh, Tyson Fury and, and, and Joshua fight. He was involved in that and you, you were uh, involved also in kind of uh, bringing this story to the public. He is doing an attempt, at least, at whitewashing his image. Well, he has been trying to do that for quite some time. He actually set up um, his own boxing club in Marbella mm. back in around 2012-13. And following the Regency Hotel attack, which basically, you know, his reputation became quite toxic after that and he mm. became a household name. He stepped back from the company and we were told he had sold it and had no longer anything to do with it. That same company is managing Tyson Fury and other very high profile boxers. Mm. They have long insisted that Kinahan isn't involved. Uh, crime journalists would have long insisted that, well, he is still, mm. but we we sort of agreed to disagree about it but mm. in recent years as Tyson Fury has becoming become the star he has Kinahan has sort of stepped back into the limelight or attempted to um in a halfway house between having anything to do with his former company or just being there as a kind of general kind-hearted advisor mm. which is what he'd lead people to believe but he has i mean he's a very significant force in boxing and some of the biggest boxing promoters in the world have come out defending him. Uh, it's a peculiar situation. There's very few sports that would allow such a situation to develop. Mm. Um, but he sort of, he's a little bit like, there's an old fashioned song called Lanigan's Wake about somebody stepping in and somebody stepping out again. And mm. that's what he's like with it. He keeps trying to step forward into the, you know, to, to claim the success 
as his own. And every time he does, uh, there seems to be a backlash from the media and a little bit of um, concern amongst uh, the boxing fraternity. Mm. And he's he draws back again, you know, but um, it doesn't stop him. Mm. You know, certain parts of the world maybe don't care. Mm. Um, boxing is a complex sport. Uh, it seemed to have been in the doldrums for a long time. Mm. But it is, uh, you know, it is, it's very much making a lot of money out of these pay-per-view fights mm. and uh, sponsorship deals and all the rest of it. So there's a huge amount of money washing around in it. Mm. Um, and the questions are, <laughs> is any of that money that washes around boxing actually drug money? Mm. Um, that's where I think other sports might be more concerned about that issue. Mm. Well, I wonder when you're writing an article, do you kind of give some thought and concern to if I talk about this person, I might have a little bit more of a difficult uh, few, next few weeks? Or is it just this is a story and I'm going to broadcast it and, the you know, the results come as they come? The only thing sort of that would be, you know, of concern to me when writing an article is that I have my facts right mm. and that I can back it up Um we obviously have lawyers who um, who work full time with us and who check everything we write and, you know, we have to fact check everything. So it's not mm. a case of sitting down and deciding, oh, I think this way, so I'll write it. You mm. have to follow very, very specific guidelines and we have very strong um, libel laws in this country. So we have mm. to be very careful as journalists that we get things right. Mm. Well, more so just that, um, you know, uh, writing about the Kinnahans, I would suspect your life would be a little safer than, say, John Gilligan or perhaps some of the more up and coming people. That that would be more kind of the aspect. Yeah, no, I just sort of um, and I think like all crime journalists, we write about whoever's relevant and we, we follow whatever story we believe needs to be exposed for the public interest. Mm. And uh, we certainly don't tend to fear one over the other. I mean, look, they're all, you know, you have to be aware that all of them are capable of crimes. Mm. So <laughs> by their very nature. So you just you're aware of that and you work within the parameters. Um, I think uh, certainly a lot of crime journalists like myself would have very good backup, you know, for the job we do mm. from security point of view. So that that helps. Mm. I wonder uh, to bring it over to the Hutches because he, uh, I was watching many pieces on uh, Jerry the Monk Hutch and he's just a, a fascinating character. Firstly, he's in the wind currently. Do we have any idea as to where he is? Nope. <laughs> um, absolutely not. I mean, up until the point that the European arrest warrant was issued from, I do know that he was between Spain and, and uh, his holiday home area of Lanzarote where he's mm. always felt very safe but he was he was based in Spain not around the Marbella area but along the coast um, and he while wa he wasn't living freely he was certainly not trying to completely hide mm. but as soon as the European arrest warrant was issued he is gone he's had a long time to plan uh how to go to the wind if he needed to. Mm. He's had a long time to um, gather 
false documentation if he so wishes, passports and all the rest of it, and to create safe environments for himself wherever in the world he may be. Mm. Um, so we'll watch with interest to see if uh, if the law enforcement do catch up with him. They mostly do catch up with people who go on the run. Um, but the world is actually not as big a place as we think. <laughs> and especially nowadays with um, with all the technology there is with mm. facial recognition and, you know, tracking and, and all the rest of it. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if he, look, he could come back and hand himself over mm. if he feels he wants to, to fight his case. But um, I think uh, he's probably kicking back somewhere very, very carefully watching mm. over his shoulder. Mm. I think it was with Eamon Dunphy that you made the point that quietly over the last few years, he has actually amassed a, quite a significant wealth. Yes, um, he certainly has a sort of a, a war chest, you may call it, but he has been working away in the background and he has amassed a lot of money mm. and become a very significant figure Um Europe-wide in organised crime himself. He's made a lot of significant connections over the past few years. And I think that what I'd say about him was that he was in a very low position after the Regency. Um, what happened that day was catastrophic, really. Mm. Um, you know, the gang that went into that hotel went for the head of an international mafia and missed Mm. And uh, the the retaliation that came back from that grouping was horrendous. Um, so I think Hutch probably hoped to get support from others and he didn't. Mm. And he mm. was on his own. And he, I think, I would say he was pretty much had no option mm. but to get himself uh, to do certain things over the last few years. Mm. Um which I'm sure he, you know, he didn't ever see himself as having to do or wanting to do. Mm. In terms of that wealth that he has amassed over the last few years, do we have any ideas to what that's been in? Well, we won't go down that road, I okay. think, um, for from a legal point mm. of view. But um, he has just, we'll just say that he has, he has certainly... He's believed to have amassed quite a lot of wealth and to have squirreled it away mm. uh, for himself all over the world so as he can get at it when he needs it. Mm. Okay. Uh, last last piece. I want, want, wanted to talk about the special criminal court because I think if you're not in the crime reporting, you probably you perhaps don't know about it. It's a tricky thing because, you know, if if like from a strictly kind of human rights perspective, it maybe isn't the most uh, constitutional or or any of those things but at the other end it perhaps is a necessary step can you give us an idea as to what the special criminals court is so it was initially established to um put paramilitaries on trial hmm. it's a three-judge court where there is no uh, jury and that was largely for purposes of juries can be intimidated very easily by organised criminals. Now, in, in actually, Gilligan and his crew were put before the Special Criminal Court, and I think they were the first 
um, non-paramilitary prisoners that are, sorry, suspects that did mm. go before that court. Um, everything about the Special Criminal Court has been challenged constitutionally and it is a robust arm of the law that is going nowhere. Uh, certain political parties don't agree with it, I think because of its history and its background. But if you ask me, it is the most vital uh, thing we have in this country for fighting organised crime. So over the last few years, I've been in and out of lots of trials in the Special Criminal Court involving um, hit men, members of the Kinahan Mafia um, and other organised crime groups, people who are on trial and I don't believe they'd have ever got to trial if it wasn't in the Special Criminal Court. Mm. Um, juries are ordinary people who go home to their ordinary homes without any protections and it's simply not possible to put some of these people uh, on trial before them. Mm. And the DPP, the Director of Public Prosecutions, decides whether a case warrants before the Special Criminal Court or not. So it's all very much above board legally. Um, there's two Special Criminal Courts operating now, whereas before there was one, mm. such as the amount of uh, figures from organised crime that are finding themselves before the courts. Okay. It Also, a story I believe quite recently was how the goods and, and stuff were being smuggled into the prisons. Uh, I believe there was a big bust of phones, drugs, everything being smuggled into the prisons. I wondered kind of the, that aspect because you have, it seems like it's a necessary step. If you want to be a good criminal, at some point you probably go to jail. So what's the, do you have any idea as to the kind of current ongoings or at least the past ongoings inside a prison well i've always been told that the kitchens in a prison are the root for everything mm. um because if you can imagine how much product is going <laughs> in and out of them every day like a prison mm. is a pretty large i don't have the figures off the top of my head how many people are um you know housed in the likes of mount joy mm. on a a daily basis but there's hundreds and mm. hundreds and there's three meals a day and there's, you know, supplies coming in, supplies going out. And the last time that there was a big bust up, um, or sorry, there was a big bust and there was seizure of all sorts of contraband. It was through the, the, the prison kitchen that it was going. Mm. Now, at that point, they were talking about it being like a click and collect service <laughs> that they were actually ordering what, it, what they wanted and that stuff has been packaged up with prisoners names on it. Mm. Um, so they were like, it was like you could order something at the door. I hear my own <laughs> bell going here. Um, it was like you're ordering something at the, the door and they they land with your package. Um, so smuggling and goods coming into prisons and contraband coming in is nothing new. Mm. That's been going on for decades. Um, and it's just the way it is. Mm. People find all sorts of ways to get things in to prisons. Mm. I'm sure prison life is pretty boring. And if I was there myself, I mightn't be <laughs> I mightn't be a stranger to trying to get a little bit of relief, whatever way it is, you know. Mm, mm. Now, our last thing, uh, you, when we were speaking on the phone, you were talking about a new thing, a new, I believe, a new podcast series you have coming out. And it kind of centers, I suppose, uh, perhaps on the idea of uh, the younger people that get into the drug uh, gangs and, and that be essentially being groomed into a life of drug dealing. Yeah, so I wrote a book there in the last two years. It was delayed slightly from with 
the COVID situation, mm. I'm just trying to think, was it September of last year? It was released called The Witness. Mm. And it's a story about a young man called Joey O'Callaghan who was groomed into a drug gang when he was only 12. He was offered a job actually on a milk float and it turned out the milkman was also delivering heroin as well as bottles of milk during mm. the night. So he was groomed into uh, that gang and he remained there until the said milkman, Brian Kenny, murdered a, another young man and Joey found himself being um, implicated into the murder, mm. being asked to hide the gun and other evidence and he realised he had to get out and he went to the guards gave evidence in the courts, convicted Kenny and his cohort, Thomas Hinchin, and ended up in the Witness Protection Programme. Mm. And it's an extraordinary story because, firstly, he's able to tell it. Mm. He's alive <laughs> to tell it. So, And he's an incredible um, insight into the world, that, that world that I could never have. You know, mm. Mm. it is alien to most of us. So to get somebody who can give you a ringside seat and explain to you exactly how it operates is is quite rare. But uh, the the book was picked up by uh, Jane Gogan, who is a, a producer. She's the former head of drama in RTE and would have been behind mm. Love Hate, mm. that series that was so popular. And um, she and I and another producer, Ian Mullaney, have turned it into a 10 part podcast mm. called The Witness in His Own Words. And on the podcast, Joey tells a story for himself mm. and you, you hear him as he describes what happened in his life. And uh, it it's episode three is out at the moment. It's one episode comes out a week. It's free to listen. Mm. Um, and we are we hit the number one position last week mm. after the second one came out. So I'm very pleased with that. And it's doing extremely well. Um mm. But it is, look, it's 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 something that I think we should all listen to, pay a bit of heed to, because while we can sit comfortably in our middle class homes, we do have to realise that um, we're all a little bit responsible for it and we all have to, you know, to try and, and do something mm. uh, about it. Mm, mm. It's, not, it's not fair to, to sit back and allow working class kids get caught up in it just because... Um, you know they've a certain address. Yeah, we, yeah. We, a, I think a, a job a, on a milk float community. shouldn't end up yeah. being a you know a, a heroin hotspot. Or crafting your life for the rest mm. of your days, you know. And I think that there are certain areas uh, where children are more vulnerable, mm. and it's easy to turn a blind eye to it, and to think, oh, that only happens in Finglas or Darndale or whatever. I think we should all take a little bit of responsibility for it and uh you know while it's it's not an easy listen the witness mm. i think uh it's probably something that we should we should really just try and turn our attention to mm. how vulnerable some children are mm-hmm. well thanks so much nicola for your time you've been incredibly gracious and okay jack <laughs> i'm sure everybody out there will uh, take a listen to the witness and indeed your own sunday world uh, podcast that's available everywhere thanks so much nicola okay thanks, thanks. jack